you know, if you have a drug that's easy to take with a low side effect profile that's been done in a very credible and rigorous fashion that shows any effect of slowing down the loss of function, and especially function in everyday living in a fatal disease, is that something that needs to move faster down the development track? I see patients every day in the ALS clinic, and there wouldn't be one person that says that they wouldn't want something like that, or at least to try it, you know, given that they have very limited options. So I think in any drug development pathway, the voice of the patient and what's important to them is critical. Hey, everybody, and welcome to an exciting episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, joined by my partner in podcasting, Jeremy Holden. And Jeremy, I look forward to each episode of this show because it seems like every week we are fortunate to connect with some of the brightest minds and biggest inspirations in the ALS community. But this week in particular, we have an important story to share. We do, Mike, and I I think you do a good service to the folks that we've been able to have on so far, but couldn't agree more. This week's episode, so important. Amelix Pharmaceuticals published this week the results of its phase two clinical trials. You can find that piece in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we can share that in the show notes. But, you know, it's a drug compound, a combination of two underlying substances. I'm getting a little bit out ahead of my uh, ahead of myself here, and certainly we'll hear from the experts on this. But AMX0035, patients who received that compound saw a clinically meaningful slowdown in progression of ALS. Big news out of Amelix over in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we were able to talk to two very bright minds in the field to kind of help us make sense of these research findings and where we go from here in terms of getting that drug to be made available for patients. It's huge. It's huge. And the news about the findings is already exciting enough to have those type of outcomes for a new ALS drug gives hope to so many living with the disease. But as you'll hear in our interviews, there's much work to be done. And Jeremy, there's even a way for the ALS community to get involved with helping those in need to gain access to this treatment. Yeah, Mike, that's right. The ALS Association, in conjunction with partners across the ALS space, including IMALS, launched a petition calling on Amelix and the FDA to work together and figure out a way to to get this drug made available for patients to talk about with their clinicians as soon as possible. And we can, of course, share that petition and information about that in the show notes. And of course, our guests today can dig in quite a bit deeper into where we, where we go next with AMX0035. That's right. You mentioned our guests and to help better explain both the research side of this news and what comes next from a regulatory perspective, we turn to the experts in Dr. Neil Thacker and Dr. Jinzi Andrews to break it all down for us. So we'll stop blathering and turn things over to the conversations we recorded with those two doctors now. For anyone who might have missed the big announcement. What can you tell us about this drug and and where it's at in the development process? Yeah, this drug is a combination of two existing drugs. And they just announced results of a a, a good-sized clinical trial in the New England Journal of Medicine that demonstrates that the drug can slow the progress of ALS. And so that's a big deal. We're pretty excited about that. So AMX0035 is a combination of sodium phenylbutyrate and a supplement called Tudka. 
it's an acronym for a longer word, toro-urso-deoxycholic acid. And it completed a clinical trial that was double blind. So that means that physicians were blinded to the treatment and so were the patients receiving it. And it was placebo controlled. So that means there was a control arm to compare the effect of AMX0035 against what we call standard of care in the United States. And so the drug itself in preclinical studies targets a couple of mechanisms that we think are important in the motor neuron as it degenerates. So one of which is the mitochondria. So the mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cells. And if they're not working correctly, the cells themselves don't function. And so AMX0035 can help with that and also mitigate what we call oxidative stress. So oxidative stress is generated by these toxic, unstable chemical compounds. And typically our bodies are able to take care of them or do housekeeping to remove them. But in ALS, in the motor neurons, usually oxidative stress is a source of stress on the motor nerves and causes degeneration as well. Additionally, AMX0035 helps to delay or prevent automatic cell death or apoptosis. So there's multiple mechanisms that are targeted by the drug. And so based on that premise, this compound was tested in a clinical trial in ALS patients. What specifically did we learn from where this was a phase two trial? For somebody listening at home, you know, what's the big takeaway? What do we know about how AMX0035 works and the effects that it has on a person living with ALS? Well, there, there are two big findings from this trial. And so the first finding is that this drug is generally safe and well tolerated. And not only did we see that in this trial and in earlier trials, but that safety information is building on years of experience with the two compounds that are used to make this particular drug, where there's also some safety data on those compounds as individual compounds. The second part is about the clinical impact. We're seeing a, a statistically significant delay in progress for people who got the treatment. And that degree of slowing seems to be clinically meaningful. So it's it ends up being, through the length of, a tri- of the trial, a delay of about two points on the functional rating scale for ALS. And, and two points, again, out of a scale of 40 is not that big, but the, the two points themselves can be very meaningful. It could mean, for example, the difference from being able to feed yourself versus being fed or needing to use a wheelchair versus being able to move without a wheelchair. And so those are meaningful differences. And that, that's all very positive. The ALS functional rating scale is a rating scale that assesses a person's overall function to do basic things that we do in everyday life, like climbing stairs, walking, breathing, swallowing, writing with a pen or a pencil, or getting dressed or turning in bed. And it's the best tool we have right now to determine someone's overall function and give it a quantified score and monitor it over time. And it's been the assessment tool that's been used to help approve other drugs that have been approved by the FDA to treat ALS, such as Idarivone, also known as Radicava. And so 
In the study that was done by Amelix, there was a statistically significant slowing of the loss of function in ALS patients treated with AMX0035 compared to those that were receiving standard of care. And so in the setting of a disease that has no cure and does not have any treatment that could reverse or improve symptoms, any medication that can help slow down the loss of function so that people can remain independent for longer with this disease is important. Now, we're out of phase two of the trial process, and of course, we're in a regulatory framework. What's next? What can be done? Is it time to get this to patients? Like, What's the next step in terms of making sure that patients have access to this when it's appropriate that they have that access? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And that's also a really challenging question. The standard process after a trial of this size with findings of this degree of clarity is to do a phase three trial. And so that phase three trial will typically take probably about three years. It'll involve a lot more people. And at the end of the trial, we would have a lot more certainty in the findings. The picture here is very good, but it's not, it's not crystal clear. There's still some questions about whether this drug would work for everyone. And so at this point, I would say this is not necessarily a drug that everyone should be on. I don't think we have the data to support that at all. But we do think that this is something that people should have as a treatment option that they should be able to discuss with their clinicians. And we would like to see that process happen. The other important picture here is that the the safety data is the strongest finding, that the, the drug is pretty safe. So we've been talking with lots of different experts in the ALS space. We've been having some hard conversations with the company. We've been having some really intensive conversations with the PIs of the study. And we've been talking with our own trustees, some of whom are our top ALS scientists. And we've been talking with other scientists in the NEALS network as well. And we've also been able to get access to some confidential data and review it ourselves. And Kaldip Dabe, our vice president for research, has really dug into this, as, as Joel Yersak, who's also a neuroscientist. And we've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. And so there's two scenarios that could happen here. So scenario one, if we have the phase three trial, is we go through this three-year process and the results are great. And they confirm what we're seeing in this current trial. And that means that's great. And we have a lot more confidence in in how to prescribe this drug. We know how to use it better. But it also means that during that phase three trial, not everyone who will benefit after the phase three would have had the opportunity to benefit during the phase three. We basically slow down the process for three years. Let's consider the alternative that we go through the phase, phase three trial and the results are bad and they don't support the findings in this current trial, and the drug doesn't turn out to work the way we we think it's working. What does that mean? That would mean that the people who who took the drug got no benefit, but because the safety data are so strong, it also means that the people who took the drug weren't really harmed by it. Mm -hmm. And so that tells us that given how devastating ALS is, it's probably best to skip that phase three trial altogether and just send that drug out into the community so 
as many people have that drug as a treatment option as possible. And if it turns out if the drug doesn't work, then the, the risk to them is, is pretty low. But if it does work, then they can have the opportunity to get the benefit right away. So that's, that's our basic logic of, of how to do this. I think the Amelix study with AMX0035 is one that actually provides an opportunity for the ALS community to really think about what we define as phase two and phase three and what is substantial evidence for either expediting access to patients with ALS or people living with the disease or continuing development. And it's a difficult question to answer. But what I can say is that ALS is a rare disorder and usually clinical trials try to study a specific population and monitor their progression over time. So often in a clinic, 10 to 15% of patients are eligible for a clinical trial. Now, ALS is a lot different than cardiovascular disease because there's not tens of thousands of patients available for clinical trials. It's on the order of hundreds. And I think one of the largest clinical trials that were done might have been the Rillizol trial, which came close to 1,000. Or more recently in 2013, there was a study in dexprimipexil in ALS, and that was about 950 or so patients. So the size is reasonable for what we call a phase two in ALS. And the way it was designed did entail components that really helped to rigorously ask the question of safety and efficacy of a, of a drug in ALS. So that includes keeping the trial double blind, using a placebo controlled group for comparison in real time with the treated group, and also looking at the data once it's completed. And so when you're looking at that data, especially in ALS clinical trials, there is meaningfulness, not only in the fact that it's statistically significant, and not only because it slowed down disease progression in the treated patients versus the patients that remained on standard of care, but it also has value in that these were pre-specified endpoints that were not manipulated in any way. These are the endpoints that were determined before the trial even started. And that carries weight and reduces the risk of false positives. Because often in early phase clinical trials and even later phase clinical trials, people will reanalyze data and sometimes do them multiple times until you quote unquote get a responder group or get a signal. But that often doesn't translate to a second confirmatory trial, especially in ALS. We've made this mistake before. And so I think this trial really highlights important key points of looking at the data in its totality. So I said that there were some questions that the ALS community will have to address, and and this study provides a pivot point in the landscape right now to kind of think about these things. So one is how much evidence do we need to get access to patients. And so when you look at this trial, there's a couple of things. One, it's a medicine that's orally administered, so it's fairly easy to take. Two, the clinical trial design used every effort to remove any potential biases. The data is based on pre-specified analyses, and the side effect profile is favorable. And so when you look at that in its totality, the hope is that in a setting where patients who don't have a lot of options, 
if they don't have anything else to go to, then something like this would be ideal to get to patients as quickly as possible. That urgency is so important to those living with the disease. How does that happen, though? Can you tell us what needs to take place with the FDA and other regulatory bodies to allow that to happen? Yeah, that's also a really good question because the level of evidence, the degree of statistical precision that's coming out of this this trial, the strength of the findings, aren't as strong as what the FDA typically does to skip a phase three trial. Mm. So for them to skip the phase three trial would be an extraordinary step. And so I think they're going to need some help to make that decision. And that's where I think the association and other ALS organizations and the whole community can really weigh in and, and help the, not only the, the FDA, but also the drug company think about this careful balancing of risk and benefit. And so here, here's what we're suggesting. We're suggesting that first the FDA and AMLEX and members of the ALS community, including people with ALS, meet to discuss this problem in particular. Mm -hmm. Second, Amelix needs to apply to the FDA to make the drug, take the drug to market. Until they submit that NDA, that new drug application, there's nothing for the FDA to do. And pulling this application it's together in itself is a significant process. It's a really long, hundreds of thousands of pages long application. It takes a long time to pull together and it takes a long time to review. And that company is not going to want to do that unless they have confidence that it's going to result in the drug going to market. And so we need them to get started on that. Right. And then we need the FDA to actually review that application and approve it. Now, given the strength of the data that we have, and it's not a slam dunk, we do think the FDA shouldn't just approve it without conditions. We think they have to require some really rigorous studies to make sure that that drug is working in the market the way that we hope that it does. So basically take as much of the elements of the phase three trial that happens under control and experimental conditions and do that research, do that work with the drug out in the market. It's not the same quality of data, but I think it can help us get a much deeper understanding of how the drug works and who the drug works for. And we can skip that step. Mm. And then while all of this is happening, the, you know, the, the paperwork is being analyzed and approved. I mean, this, this process in itself takes many, many months. And so we, I think we also need to ask Amelix to make this drug available through expanded access until the drug comes to market and it can be accessed through you know, normal insurance and pharmacies and so forth. And so what we're talking about is a petition where people with ALS, where clinicians can sign on to these, these five points. And the petition is not just to the FDA, but it's to both the FDA and the company, because they both have to take actions to get this to, drug to market as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and the, 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 the gain that we can hope for here is to avoid doing a phase three trial which will bring this drug to market years faster than it would otherwise. And we, of course, can share a link to that petition in our show notes so listeners can get engaged and help push this process along. 
Dr. Thacker, we've seen promising developments in phase two trials before. I'm thinking specifically about, say, Neurone. Mm -hmm. Why this drug? Why now in terms of pushing the company, the FDA, to try and get access to patients, you know, and kind of going a different track as opposed to the phase three trial? Yeah, there are lots of scientific and regulatory ways in which neuron, for example, and this drug are, are different. One of the, I think, key issues is that by the time we got the phase two data that those phase two results were published, the company and FDA had already started on their phase three trial. And so that, that timing issue basically made this process moot. It, it wouldn't have worked because they're already on a, on a different path. The other thing that's interesting about this particular drug, this AMX0035, is the safety data, how safe the drug is, and also the consistency of the results. The consistency of the results in the people who took it and also in the sites where the drug was administered. I believe this trial had, had 26 sites. And so that gives us a lot of confidence in this drug that we, we might not for another drug based on the data that we saw. Also, this, this clinical trial, this phase two, it was called a phase two trial, but it, it was a pretty big trial, and it was bigger than a, a lot of other phase two trials in, in the ALS space. One of the key differences is the size of the study. Number one, the neuron phase two study was only an assessment of a one-time treatment with autologous stem cells in less than 50 patients. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was 48 patients total in that study. They were randomized two to one treatment to placebo. Currently, that investigational product called Neurone, so those are autologous derived stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells, is in a phase three clinical trial, and that will also complete. So I think given where we are with a completed clinical trial for AMX0035 with data from a pre-specified analysis. So unlike the phase two data from Neuron, this is something that before the trial started, the analysis plan was already determined and it wasn't analyzed what we call post hoc or after the data has been collected because that can introduce new biases. So I think in those ways, a completed clinical trial, a larger trial, and hitting that pre-specified endpoint of ALS-FRS as indicated before the trial even started, are important factors in trying to figure out a way to move things faster and get them to patients sooner. I mean, that should be the case really for most ALS drugs. I mean, ALS is a disease that's serious, life-threatening, and fatal. I think this is a moment in time for the ALS community to evaluate how we can do that better. Is there a precedent for this sort of thing, Dr. Thacker, either in the ALS space or, you know, in, uh, for other neuro disorders where you see this kind of promise and results from an earlier trial and make this kind of move, take these steps to petition the FDA and, and the pharma company? Yeah, there is. And it doesn't always work out the way that we want. In some cases, the community has gotten very excited about drugs and push the FDA to be responsive, and the FDA has listened, and then these drugs turn out not to have a significant clinical impact. In the ALS space, when we look at the evidence that was available to justify the approval of, of Radicava or Rilizol, the evidence wasn't that much stronger or, or that different, really, from the evidence that we're seeing here. 
but it still does require the FDA to do something unusual. And it also requires the company to do something unusual. And so when I'm suggesting a petition, I'm not suggesting something that's hostile. I think the petition is a way for the community to explain and document that we understand what the the risks and the benefits are here. And because ALS is so devastating, we're willing to accept a higher level of risk for a chance for benefit. Thinking about how intense the regulatory process can be for these drugs and the mountains of, of paperwork and regulation that goes into all of it, do you feel that for ALS in particular, involving the voices of those living with the disease and their families and the greater ALS community in an appeal to the FDA it can help move the needle and really demonstrate the need for urgency in cases like this? I think the voice of people living with the disease and their caregivers is essential in all diseases, not just ALS, in mm. determining what is the level of risk they're willing to take in terms of getting access to new therapies. The ALS community as a whole has expressed to the FDA on multiple occasions, I've been there for public hearings with the FDA where they've acknowledged that they're willing to take a level of risk more than what the traditional regulatory model has allowed. And I think it's important for the community to kind of take action at this point because now we have a trial and now we have data to take action on. So I think that's where the opportunity comes in. You know, if you have a drug that's easy to take with a low side effect profile that's been done in a very credible and rigorous fashion that shows any effect of slowing down the loss of function and especially function in everyday living in a fatal disease, is that something that needs to move faster down the development track? I see patients every day in the ALS clinic and there wouldn't be one person that says that they wouldn't want something like that, or at least to try it, you know, given that they have very limited options. So I think in any drug development pathway, the voice of the patient and what's important to them is critical. Tell me, Dr. Thacker, how long has the ALS Association been involved with this project? Because I know the association funds more than 150 research projects around the globe and at varying stages. So how long have, has the association been involved here with Amelix? For a number of years, we're actually supporting about 175 active projects around the world. This was one of the first clinical trials that the association was able to support with ice bucket funding. And so we started supporting the project in 2016 with a direct grant to Amelix, as well as a grant to the Northeast ALS Clinical Trial Consortium, the NEALS Clinical Trial Network. We also gave them a grant to conduct a lot of aspects of the trial. So between the two things together, and also with collaborating with ALS Finding a Cure, we were able to support most of this trial. Our contracts have a payback provision, and I believe the way it's structured is we're entitled to a small percentage of sales up to 150% of our investment in these two grants. And so that would mean that over the course of, you know, how many months or years it takes, we could get up to 3.3 million. And so what we would do in this case, if it if it happened, is we would just turn around and, and put those money back into research grants. 
to keep the science moving forward. Are those types of agreements pretty common? They are. And in the philanthropic space, they're standard. And so sometimes they're just payback like ours is where it's capped. And in other cases, they're not capped. And some philanthropic organizations have made a considerable amount of money on royalties. But that, that's not a possibility here. And that's not a consideration for us. Our our goal is to get as many clinical trials started, and we put a payback clause in there as standard procedure, and sometimes they, they pay back and sometimes they don't. Um, just to put this in scale, you know, last year our research budget was $17 million, and this year uh, we've had to make some adjustments for COVID, but, but ideally we, would, we think that's a realistic budget amount per year. Thank you again to our guests, Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association, and Dr. Jinzi Andrews, a member of the ALS Association Board and the Director of Neuromuscular Clinical Trials at Columbia University. There's a lot to be excited about as you listen to Dr. Thacker and Dr. Andrews dissect each element of the Amelix News, but there's definitely more to this story. We encourage you to check out ALS.org for the latest information on this research and to follow both the ALS Association and Connecting ALS on social media to stay up to speed on any developments as they unfold. And next week on the podcast, we're hoping to speak with a few individuals who are currently living with ALS about their perspective on this news and any action they're planning as a result. So be sure to tune into that. Of course, the easiest way to ensure that you don't miss any of our content is to subscribe to the show at ConnectingALS.com or wherever you listen. And if you do have a free moment, we'd greatly appreciate you rating and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app, as that does make a difference in helping others discover the show. That's all we've got for you this week. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening, and we'll connect with you again soon. 